it's happened. Uh, so, what were we talking about last half hour? I have no idea. My memory span is not that long. I remember like the, like the like the different like talks. Go, go. But I don't know remember what, what, what like, were the talks like, on? theme. There was one about identity, mm-hmm. and 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 your identity should like putting your identity in God, mm-hmm. and um, there was another one that uh, oh there was one on intimacy. Mm-hmm. There was um yeah, sure. anyone help out here? Um, yeah. I can vaguely remember wasn't it the togetherness in the church? Something like that. Yeah. Ish. Wasn't the whole thing uh be rooted in the spirit, be rooted in community? That was the last Well done! That clearly was a strong one. We hammered that one home. Alright, let me help you all out. I don't remember much of the names of the talks. So Before that, what did you say? What's the authentic church? Good. So, we were talking about authentic church, so like what it means to be a part of Jesus' church. Um, so, last half term, as Artie half told us, we were talking about how Jesus wants us to know true intimacy, intimacy, happiness, family, and identity. Put that down. Um, so this half term, we're going to keep looking at this theme of authentic church, but with a slightly different focus. Uh, so we're going to be talking about how following Jesus, or being a disciple, or being a part of this authentic church, which is all different ways of saying the same thing, um, how that touches every part of our life. So, here's my mouth. So this talk is actually supposed to be about suffering. Um, not all the suffering that we experience ever, but specifically the pain and the cost that is a part of following Jesus. Um, and I was going to talk about how we shouldn't be surprised that there's a cost to following Jesus. I think sometimes we can have this assumption that um, if we, like, like following Jesus should make our lives like pain-free and easier. Like, if I invite Jesus into my life as kind of a nice add-on, then he'll fix all of my problems for me. Like, we can look at the gospel kind of like that. Um, but, huh? Something like that. Um, Yes, but actually the true gospel is not that. And life with Jesus can actually in some ways be harder than life without him. And it involves sacrifice. Uh, So, yeah, so there's this difference between what Jesus says and what we want a lot of the time. Uh, And surrendering to him on those things can be painful because it means giving up things that we want. Uh, So we're not perfect. I I know I'm not. Um, So... It is true like that we are masterpieces we're god god's works of art it says in ephesians um that the word that they use in the greek it's where we get our word poetry from so it's like saying we are god's poetry which obviously i like um so that is true that's that's who we are that's what we are but it's also true that we are works in progress so some of what jesus says is going to feel unnatural to us it's going to feel painful or even wrong Uh, and yeah we're we're not we're not perfect we're not going to be aligned with the perfect one in everything So Jesus is going to ask us to do some things that we're not going to want to do, and that is going to hurt. So, oh, hang on. Right, so Jesus says this in Matthew 21. He tells this parable. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? So the answer, obviously, is the first one. Neither. Yeah, 
is that the son who acted out his obedience instead of speaking it is the one who did what his father wanted. Yeah? So it's not just about saying yes. I have said yes to Jesus on so many things and then gone back on my word. Jesus isn't just asking for lip service. He wants our actions. He wants our lives to be reflecting this yes that we've spoken. So Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, he said to the Father, not my will but yours. But then he lived that out all the way to the cross. And we're called to do the same thing, not just to say yes to God, not just to say, not my will but yours, but then to live it out, even if it takes us to somewhere like the cross. Uh, so, yes. Oh, and it will likely mean, like it did for Jesus, doing things that we don't want to do, or giving up things that we do want to do, which obviously hurts, it costs us. But before we dig into that, um, I felt like we should take a step back and talk about the Bible. Shocker, I know. Um, so we, the way that we talk about this, we tend to talk about like the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Bible, like they're the same thing, like they're kind of interchangeable. Um, we, we talk like submitting to one means submitting to the other. We're like, if you're following Jesus, then you're doing what the Bible says. Um, so yeah, these things that I'm talking about that are going to cost you, these things that you hear from us about how God wants you to live, they hopefully come from the Bible. Uh, and that is because we believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's what he has actually said to us about what it means to be human and for him to be God. So I just wanted to take a second talk about why we believe this. Um, there are like many reasons, and we could probably talk about this for ages. These are just four that I've pulled off the top of my head. Uh, so first of all, <coughs> why we believe the Bible why we believe it's the word of God. So we have tons and tons of historical evidence showing that the Bible is a reliable historical text. So we can know that the things that it talked about really happened, like there's archaeological archaeological evidence um, about some of these things that are talked about in the Bible. And we can also know that the text has not been tampered with. It's a reliable copy, an accurate reflection of what was originally written down. I wish so something else in history was as reliable as the Bible. <laughs> I think my classics lesson was so much easier. It would. Yeah. It's really interesting, actually, if you look into it, because like so many of the things in that you'd study in classics, like just just when you look at like how long <coughs> the gaps are between copies being made or how many copies that there are, there's like you know three copies over a thousand year period. But then you look at the Bible and there's like two thousand copies yeah. produced in a hundred years, and it's just mad. Anyway, there was as much Sappho poetry as there was in the Bible. <laughs> I'm not going to dig into that one. So the heresy there. Yeah. So no, Bible. it's not. Bible! Bible, um, historical evidence. We can logically trust what it says. You don't have to chuck your brain out the window to believe the Bible. Uh, second reason that I thought of, first class storytelling. So First class as in like super good? Or? As in super good. Oh. So there is this incredible <coughs> unity and harmony to the Bible. It is, it is one story that all points to Jesus. Um, even though it was written by like, I don't know, 50 odd people over however many years, like centuries, and in all these different places and cultures, it doesn't, it doesn't read that way. It doesn't read like there were 50 odd people involved and they all had their different agendas and their different ideas about what they wanted to communicate. And like, it reads like there was one author. <coughs> um, it's like, so, so there, are these, there are these series. My favorite book series tend to be one. Um, Harry Potter is a good example of this. So mm -hmm. like, she'll say stuff in the first book and like plant all these little seeds and you don't realize it's important and then kind of you know maybe something becomes clearer in like book four and it's like oh that's really cool and then you get to like book seven and something that she mentioned way back in book one is suddenly so important and it's like this whole thing has been leading up to this like big moment of revelation so and not you game of thrones <laughs> i haven't read game of thrones because i have standards no, it's the tv show i haven't watched game really of thrones because i have standards fair enough me too the point being um like 
that I, I love that. I'm so awed by that because you know I write and like when I see people do that in stories, I just I love it. I think it's so clever when someone can just like they know where the whole thing is going from the beginning and they can just weave this whole thing together. So they reveal it to you and you're like that makes so much sense and that's where it was going all along and that's so clever and I love it. Uh, and the Bible reads that way. Like it, it doesn't read like there were all these different people doing all these different things. It reads like there was this one really clever author who knew where it was going and he was like dropping hints along the way and foreshadowing things and then you get the big reveal of Jesus and like the explanation of what it all meant and you're like, oh my gosh, this is where it was all going. Um, so yeah, it's first class storytelling uh, and this incredible unity and this harmony to it, like it reads like there is this one author, God. Uh, third thing that I thought of was my maths is that Jesus himself quoted and believed and loved the Old Testament. So obviously the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was around. Uh, so all he had was the old one. But like he, he loved it. He knew it. He memorised it. Um, and we know that from the New Testament, which you could say is kind of a circular argument because we're talking about the Bible to back up the Bible. But you can also know it even if you don't have that. Like just the fact that Jesus was a Jew and grew up in the house <coughs> life that he had. Like he knew scripture. He memorised it. He, he, he loved it. Uh, and the last thing, and my last reason that I believe the Bible is the Word of God is my own personal experience. So there's a verse in Hebrews uh, that says that the Bible, the Word of God, is living and active. Like it's alive and it does stuff and it cuts right to the heart of you. And I have experienced it doing this. Like it's like as you read the Bible, it reads you and it changes you and it challenges you. Um, and I've, I've met Jesus in it. Like as I have read the Bible, I have seen what Jesus is like and I have heard what his voice sounds like and I've no, I got to know him better and know what his character is like and his Holy Spirit in me as I'm reading the Bible like is confirming to me like yes this is the word of God this is what Jesus has said this is this is a good way to live um, so that's just four things that I thought of off the top of my head and if you want to talk to us about it more then please do uh, but we will proceed with the assumption that we're all okay with the fact that the Bible is the word of God and that following Jesus, like coming under the authority of Jesus, being a part of this authentic church that we've been talking about, means coming under the authority of the Bible. And that's a good thing. I think when we talk about authority, we can have really negative connotations. We don't like it. But being under the authority of the Bible is a really good thing. The Bible is not a dangerous or life-sucking or damaging authority. It doesn't lord it over you. It doesn't use its authority in a degrading way or a hurtful way. The Bible is the word of the God who chose to use his own power and authority to lay down his life for you. The Bible is really good. Um, and I was going to give you a chunk of Bible verses to tell you about that, but rather than you having to listen to me read them all, I have some in this book. Um, so I want you to grab one and then look it up, and then I would like you to stand against that wall like in the order that we find them in the Bible, and then you can read them in turn and we can hear them in the appropriate order. So come grab this book. Can we all get like different versions up on the internet and all read them in like so like it sounds completely bonkers? Right. No. I think that would be really funny. Oh, you can do it. I'm going to get the longest one in the entire world. Really? Yeah. Oh, my hold on a minute. Back to that. No, no, no. I know, but I want to go back to that. Thank you very much. Uh, could you chuck me a Bible? Yeah, you can stand up to, you know, you chuck me a Bible? Look at your Thank you.
and then give us the verse and have a listen because this is some stuff the Bible says about itself. Go for it. Deuteronomy 8.3 He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which, ne- which neither you or your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Cool. Psalm 19, verse 7 The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Lovely. Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. <coughs> Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light to my path. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Luke 11, verse 28. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the words of God and obey it. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 1, 3a. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, which is penetrant even to divide penetrates Divide. even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges <coughs> through the attitudes of the heart James 1.22 do not merrily listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says lovely thank you everybody sit back down <laughs> 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 no no I'm not taking it <laughs> 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 I'm not taking it <
about itself yeah some things that are true of the word of god so it brings change and it brings life and it brings joy and wisdom and refreshment it shows us the way to go and we should obey it it's good and we need it so coming under the authority of the bible the authority of jesus is a good thing uh it's good for us it's beautiful and powerful and perfect so when you and the bible disagree who wins do you submit to what god has said do you submit to jesus's authority when he asks something of you that you don't want to give, what is your response? So it can sound kind of one-sided when we talk about surrendering to Jesus' authority. Like, he's sitting up there on his throne demanding everything from me. It can feel like it all goes one way. But if it looks that way, it's because we have missed the gospel. We've missed that Jesus gave us everything first. He denied himself for us. He made sacrifices for us more than we can grasp. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus, although he was equal to God and in very nature God, he became a human being, like he gave up that much for us. And as if that wasn't enough, he then died. He gave up his life for us. And as if that wasn't enough, he died on a cross, like the most painful and degrading way that a human being has ever been killed. That's what he went through for us. He gave up everything for us. He literally died to have us. So when we talk about surrender, it's so important to remember that it's in response to everything that he has already surrendered for us. Bowing to Jesus' authority is not about giving over everything to a tyrant king who leaves us with nothing. That's the wrong, the wrong way to look at it. That's the wrong picture. It's far more like a wedding. It's like we are halfway through the ceremony, we're halfway through the vows, and Jesus has just bowed his whole self to us. He's just promised to love us forever in sickness and in health, and there's no need to talk about till death do us part, because it never will. Uh, and now it's our turn to respond. That, that is what surrender to Jesus is like. It's... it's this person that we love who has given his entire self to us and we get to respond by giving our whole selves to him. So if we're focused on what we have to give up to be united with him, then we've missed the point. Like no one on their wedding day is sat around crying, like mourning over everything that they've just lost. I think people do that. Hopefully they don't. Like the point of a wedding, the point of the day <coughs> is that you're celebrating how much you've just gained. Like, yes, there is a cost in being with Jesus, but like just as like there's a cost in being married to somebody like there are things that you have to give up in order to do that but they're so not the focus they're so not the point what we gain is the point we get jesus and that's what we need to focus on so we must come under the authority of jesus giving him our whole selves like he gave his whole self for us his authority his words the things he asked of us they are life-giving and life-saving but while it's not the focus we do need to acknowledge that this might mean suffering so I just want you to explore this for a <coughs> second. So John Markheimer, I don't know who he is, but he said this. He wrote a really good book about rest. Yeah. He wrote a good book, and uh, apparently mm -hmm. you should read it. He said, God is more concerned <coughs> with your long-term character than your short-term happiness, and he is more than willing to sacrifice the one to get to the other. Now, that does not sound fun, right? Like, I, I want the character that God wants for me. I want to be, like, humble and holy and blameless and spotless and things like that. But the sacrifice of my comfort and my short-term happiness does not seem like a nice way to get there. Just a note on this, it does say short-term happiness. Like, God is more... God does not want you to be 
God doesn't want you to be miserable. He is more invested in your joy than you are. He is more interested in your happiness than you are. Um, like, it's just what he is getting at is like sometimes it takes the sacrifice of our short term happiness to get to that kind of fuller joy. Um, Paul is also talking about this. He's a nutcase. And he goes even further. Romans 5. Not only that, I can't remember what we were talking about before, but not only that, <laughs> but we rejoice in our sufferings, which is my daily experience, I don't know about you. Uh, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Some Bibles will translate that word patience. And endurance, or patience, produces character. That's going to be on the recording. Blaze, blown a nose, just for the whole chat. Yep. I'm um, ill. Produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So every now and then, I will get a glimpse of this. Like, not when I'm in the middle of something. Um, when I'm in the middle of something painful, then it's like, why God, why? Make it end, kill me now, kind of vibes. But once I'm like out of it, and I can look at it in hindsight, I can see how my surrender, my sacrifice, has provided an opportunity for God to shape my character in the most beautiful ways. So right back when I began my relationship with God, like properly, I was about 20. Um, and it was in this place of me having to surrender some stuff that I really didn't want to. And I was actually saying to him, right, God, I can give you today. Like, I cannot, I cannot give you this thing fully. I cannot do that. I cannot even promise you tomorrow. I might change my mind on this whole thing. But I know I can do today. And I'll follow you today. And I will surrender this thing to you today. And that's all I got. Um, and I love that that is the foundation of my relationship with him, just this like process of daily surrendering. It's, it's taught me so much, and it's shaped my character so much, and he's put some things really deep in me that couldn't be there any other way. And there are so many other examples throughout my life that I can see that. I can see that this costly surrender has provided this opportunity for God to like widen my view of who he is, or like give me, give me this hope that Paul is talking about, like give me a deeper sense of that, or just increase my capacity to receive his love. C.S. Lewis, because what is a talk without a reference to oh, C.S. Lewis? He says this in his book, The Problem of Pain. It's long, but it's worth it. Bear with. We are, not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble, and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient, if it were conscious, if it were aware. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it was only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny, but then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. I love C.S. Lewis. So, so what he's getting at, we are God's masterpieces, we are his poetry, and he is making us more beautiful than we can even comprehend, more glorious than we've ever imagined, than we ever knew we could be. And that's true love, that's real love. But it does cost us, it requires our surrender and our sacrifice and our letting go of things that he doesn't want in us. And sometimes that will make sense to us. Like sometimes we can see the things that are ugly in us and we're like, God, I don't want this in me. Like, yes, please take it. This is good. Like I can, it'll probably be a painful process like for you to take it, but I can see that it's a really good thing and I don't want this. So yes, let's do it. But sometimes it, it makes no sense, the things that God is asking of us. And, and that just hurts. 
Sometimes we'll ask of us things that we want or we deserve or we even need. Sometimes it feels like we'll die if we give him what he's asking, like he's asking for something that we just cannot afford to lose. But the question that the Bible asks of us is, will we trust him and do it anyway? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Do you you recite it? I mean, it's up there now, so it's too late. No, it's fine. Oh, well. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what's seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I like this verse, um, blind eyes. Me too. (laughs) So, do we believe that God is this good? Now, do we believe that he can have this much in store for us, that he's got an eternal glory that far outweighs any suffering that we experience? And can we live in faith that what we do not yet see is worth the sacrifice of these temporary things that we love and the surrender of our whole lives to Jesus? There is just one more way I want to look at this. Um, so in the culture that Jesus grew up in, family was everything. Right? It was your identity, your wealth, your status, your purpose, everything. Uh, and it says this in Mark 10, or Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, <laughs> truly, I <don't. laughs> truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel, for no one who has left the most valuable things that they have for me and for the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, woohoo, and in the age to come, eternal life. So this is a crazy promise, right? Jesus is promising that even if we give up, no, sorry, if we give up even the things that we value most for him, that we will receive back from him so much more than we gave away, both in eternity and right now. And yes, there'll be pain too. Like this world is not perfect, it's broken. We're gonna gonna go through persecutions. We're gonna go through stuff. But there will be a greater joy than if we try to hold on to what he's asking us to give him. When he says no, it is for a greater yes. He's asking us to embrace these light and momentary troubles that Paul was talking about, to give up even what we value most, to accept his no on some things in this life for the sake of the greater yes, this greater eternal glory, this hundred times more and then eternal life. When Jesus says no, it's for a greater yes. So a story to help illustrate this. When I was 10, I know, so long ago, horrifyingly long ago, when I was 10, uh, there was this one day, when I wanted to just stay at home and not do a lot. I mean, there were a lot of days that were like this, let's be honest, but I'm thinking about one particular day. Uh, so it was November, so it was probably really whole, whole, cold and nasty outside. Like I just wanted to stay inside and knowing me at 10 and 28, just read a book. Um, but my parents said no, they wouldn't let me. And they packed me and my brother into a car and we started driving and they wouldn't tell us where we were going. And I sulked. Like, there have been some epic sulkings from Ashley Hull over the course of history, but this topped them all. Like, I can still remember just the white-hot fury that I was not being allowed to do what I wanted. Uh, I was amazing. Like, I got my brother on board, so my parents had two horrible brats in the back of the car instead of just one. I did a good job. It was not a good job. Um, so we arrive at our destination, and uh, we walk inside, and it's a cinema. And it's not... I mean, they've redone Oxted Cinema of late, so it's not... I can't quite draw the comparison for you, but back in the day, uh, like Oxted Cinema, it was all right, but you know the the seats were like the threadbare stuff, and uh, if one person was like jiggling their leg a bit, the entire row would shake. And the sound was a bit crackly, and like the because of the height of things, at, at ten years old, if I wanted to see it, I had to like contort myself so I could see around the person in front of me. Bit of a nightmare. So we didn't go to Oxted Cinema. We went to this like 
proper cinema. So it had like the big leather seats that like you maybe reclined a little bit and the person in front of you is down at knee level so there's no visual problems and the screen's as big as a house. And you're probably going to be deaf after the sound system turns its way with you and all this kind of thing. So I'm sat there and I'm like, oh, this is actually quite good. I'm like, they've, they've taken me somewhere nice. So I wonder what movie we're going to see. And uh, the screen comes up with the, like, the name of the film on it and it says, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Oh my god. The, like, this is the height of awesome. For me at 10, me at 28 has realised that, you know, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is not an excellent movie. Um, <laughs> but, like, at the time, this is the best thing they could have ever possibly given me. Um, so, the thing to, do, well, two things to take from this. First of all, just that my parents are stupendously gracious. That they still, they didn't turn around halfway, they, like, continued and uh, gave this amazing gift to these two very grumpy children. Um, the actual thing is that they said no to what I wanted, but it's because they had something so much better for me. Uh, I just wanted to stay at home, but they had Harry Potter. And I, I didn't understand that. I couldn't see it. And I didn't trust them. I didn't trust that they were saying no for a greater yes. Yeah? When Jesus says no, it is for a greater yes, and it's something so much better than Harry Potter. And sometimes we can understand what that greater yes is, Sometimes we can see like the end of the story from where we're at and we can see how we're going to get there and that makes sense. But so often we cannot see it, we cannot understand. And we're like, we're sat, it's like we're sat in the back of that car. What are we going to do in that moment? Will we trust him in that moment when we cannot see finally where he is taking us or what the greater yes might be? So, we're on 22. So his words are right and true. As someone read, they're life-giving and life-changing, they're necessary and powerful and good. And as his followers, we need to obey them, even if it costs us, because that is always the best thing for us. We get to give our whole selves to Jesus, just as he gave and continues to give his whole self to us. So we're going to spend the rest of this term looking at a few different areas of our lives and what it means for them to come under the authority of Jesus. Um, but right now, we are going to have some discussion. Oh. I know.